0: Welcome to Blessing in Disguise, a podcast about decoding Christian doctrine in a search for hopeful messages and rituals to inspire even the most secular of do-gooders. Our goal is to hopefully delve into some of the thorniest and most controversial topics in Christian theology. Uh, we should also mention we're not here to convert anybody. We're also not here to demonize. Um, we're just really looking to try and see if there's something there either for the closet Christian or the social justice activist who's just about ready to throw in the towel, be it you know, giving up hope on the fight that they're in or just sick of the way Christian theology has been framed for so long.
1: Yeah, also neither of us are experts. You know, if this were like a movie based on real life, Um, it would still be classified as fiction. We're just two late 20-somethings trying to, like, use some knowledge and experiences that we've had to figure out what to do from here. Um, The title is Blessing in Disguise, which I think is apt because Christianity sometimes can come off as this very closed system or this very uh, ancient or outdated thing. Um, And we think that behind that uh, facade there are maybe some really great gems of wisdom and inspiration that we can use.
0: Sounds about right. We should probably also introduce ourselves now that I think about it. Uh, My name is Hannah Pearls. I am 27. I grew up in a secular household, almost a pro-science household, I guess you could say. Um, And I then worked as a scientist. I was a geochemist for a while. Um, and wasn't really exposed to a positive aspect of Christianity until I came to El Salvador over three years ago uh, under the auspices of the Episcopal Church. Um, and that's where I met Laurel and first saw Christianity as something that I might gain something from, which was a pretty new perspective based on what I had experienced growing up.
1: Yeah, and I'm Laurel Marshall. Um, I was raised, I went to a UCC, a, congregational church until I was about 13 and then I went to Catholic high school and then I actually converted to Catholicism as a senior in high school so I've always been pretty into like mysticism and religion Um, and then I studied theology in college and I got my master's in theology in El Salvador where I met Hannah and lived for over five years And I also worked with Christian-based communities who are small Christian communities that were involved in a lot of the social justice movement in El Salvador, especially in the 80s, but still today. Um, So Hannah and I were just, you know, having a conversation over dinner one night and started talking about the Trinity, and it was just a great conversation. We decided to make a podcast out of it.
0: I think the conversation went more like, what the heck is up with the Trinity? It makes no sense. And I was like, oh, do you really want to talk
1: about this?
0: And now uh, we have this podcast as really a result of that first conversation. And um, the first, one of the first things, along with the Trinity, that uh, we wanted to talk about was the reign of God. What is this um, idea of heaven or this kingdom or this sort of end point? Um, either up in the sky or somewhere else. But, but, but what does that mean? And most importantly, what does that mean for us if we're not yet dead? So uh, we've decided to really focus this first episode on the reign of God um, and that revolution piece you see in the title we will get to, I promise.
1: I just want to share this story about this woman that I met on a delegation in El Salvador. Um, In January of this year, her name is Heidi, and she's a seminary student at Union in New York. And she was saying how she had started her studies um, of Christian ministry with a focus on interreligious dialogue. And she says she quickly kind of left that behind because it was very difficult to decide what version of all of these different religions you're going to put into dialogue with each other. Because, for example, when we talk, when we see Islam in the news a lot right now, we're hearing fundamentalist Islam. We're hearing that, like, normal Muslim people don't think what ISIS thinks. You know, there are different versions of Islam. And just like that, there are different versions of Buddhism. There are different versions of Judaism. There are different versions of Christianity. And so I think it's important for us to clarify what version of Christianity we're talking about and what we're going to talk about And the kind of Christianity that we ran into a lot in El Salvador was liberation theology. You know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and the Christianity, the Catholicism that came along with the secular state conquest was also this religious, violent experience of um, threatening people with more suffering if they didn't agree to be baptized, or... um, Religious power being very equated with political power. And so from 1492 up through pretty much the middle of the 20th century, religion and Christianity especially was very um, visually and symbolically associated with this colonial violence that really wiped out a lot of the indigenous population in El Salvador and enslaved many people and did away with indigenous culture, or at least devalued it to the point where um, Christianity was this imperial colonizing force. And so in the mid 1900s, you have the Second Vatican Council Which does a lot of things. Many people, you know, my parents remember this for sure. The mass stopped being in Latin, it started being in the local language, the priest turned around and faced the people in church as he was talking to them during mass. Um, Church just became a lot more accessible or, or Bible stories became a lot more accessible because people were hearing them in their own language every week. And so what that meant in El Salvador was that people started reading the Bible, people started hearing these stories and understanding that Christianity was not this violent conquest that came and and shut them up and killed them in many examples, but that um, God does not want us to suffer. So liberation theology takes this very, now obvious, I think, point that God does not want us to suffer and puts that in the Salvadoran context. That means that the majority of people who are economically poor, that's not the will of God. That's not how it should be. And so it is our Christian duty then to struggle for a more just society. And so this was a thing that happened in Brazil, in El Salvador, in Nicaragua, definitely. In places like Chile, all throughout Latin America, this liberation theology movement started in the late 60s, early 70s, and since then it's really taken off. People have understood liberation theology to mean that God doesn't want us to be oppressed economically, God doesn't want us to be oppressed based on our race or ethnicity, God doesn't want us to be oppressed based on our gender identification or sexual orientation or what have you. Um, There are so many versions of liberation theology out there now, but in El Salvador it's still very much based on this idea that we should not be economically poor.
0: Which I think, you know, it sounds all nice and rosy, but one of the pieces that made us say revolution in the reign of God is that when we interpret the sort of good news through this lens, you inherently come up against structures of power, right? So if you say that you have the right to economic well-being, well, that's going to be a problem because you then confront structures of inequality that have been there for a long time. And the Salvadoran Civil War, I would argue, is an example of that. Um, so I think just to throw the other side of the coin, right? Like this is a nice, rosy, wonderful place to come from, but it also can be inherently controversial when we start applying it in different contexts. So I just, that's what is attractive to me about liberation theology, is that it inherently puts us. Um, in a place to both look at why people are poor and then also to say we have almost a, you know, be it a religious or whatever other duty to then question how can we be a part of making that a reality for everybody.
1: I mean, I think liberation theology is definitely a very dynamic theology because it has implications for our daily life here. And also, if I'm being oppressed, who is the oppressor? And it's never fun to call people out. It's never fun to identify who is benefiting because of the oppression of other people and it's never comfortable for that person to realize that and and choose to be different. That's very hard. So from this liberation theology perspective, talking about the reign of God, um, it becomes clear why the reign of God or why the kingdom of heaven or whatever you wanna call it is important or pertinent even if we don't believe in like pearly gates after we die. There's this link between spirit and matter that liberation theology offers us that I think is particularly useful here. Usually, if you're reading the Gospels, Jesus talks all the time about the reign of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Just to clarify, I say reign of God um, instead of kingdom of God because maybe God is not a king. I think king just has a lot of like royal, male connotations to it that I don't really want to use. So I'm going to say reign of God, but it... Those phrases in the Gospels are used interchangeably. Reign of God, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. We're talking about the same place or project. Um, And so often we hear that phrase and we think reign of God is heaven. It's this, the pearly gates that you go to after you die. It's your reward for being good and accepting your tests and suffering here on earth. Um, And it's, you know, the pie in the sky. One uh, good vocab word we can throw in here is eschatological. Eschatological um eschatology is the study of the end times what happens at the end um of time and so the book the revelations at the very end of the bible is a very eschatological book it's talking about what happens at the end and we've gotten confused i think as time has gone on and as the tradition has developed in equating the end times or this heaven that we're waiting for with like after my individual death this will be true when really I think it points more towards this dream for humanity like it seems so far away that we just put it at the end of time but what we're hoping for and working towards in this life and throughout the generations as people die and their children kind of take up the reins is this end time this utopia where God's rule and God's will is enacted here on earth as it is in heaven as we say in the Our Father eschatology means someday it's out of my control I won't see it my children might not see it but at the end of time eventually we'll get to this place where God reigns where the will of God for humanity and for creation is true when what what Christian evolution or what what this Christian development towards the reign of God means is that there's actually a benevolent force moving us along that way we're not just going to get better and better at surviving but we'll also get better and better at caring for each other and providing for each other
0: Mm -hmm. and that's not i mean my understanding is that's not something that's uniquely christian either that's something that's present in the jewish tradition the islamic tradition the buddhist tradition there is this benevolent force that would really just like us all to be nice to each other and live in
1: peace so so the reign of God or the kingdom of God, the rule of God, what will it look like? What are some characteristics of the reign of God that, that we hope comes about at the end of time, but that we are also to call called to work towards here on earth? One thing that I think is really clear in the life of Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels is it will be a reign of inclusion, of less marginalization. Jesus is constantly reaching out to marginalized peoples in his time to include them and to bring them closer to each other. So, for example, the lepers. Um, Leprosy in the time of Jesus was this very impure sickness. Lepers were excluded and had to go live by themselves, much like people who suffered from AIDS, you know, in the 20th century and still today um, are excluded, are marginalized from society. And Jesus would go and touch them and bring them in and dine with them, which was totally in contradiction of of Jewish law at the time. Um, So the reign of God will be somewhere with less marginalization, less judgment, less exclusion, and much more reaching out to the borders, reaching out to those who are excluded or deemed bad citizens or who are deemed impure or wrong, and, and bringing them in regardless of that judgment. Um, It's also going to be a reign or it's what we're working towards is equality of um, sexes, races, classes. Um, You know, Jesus included women in his ministry in a really revolutionary way. Jesus included people of different nationalities in his ministry in really revolutionary ways. You have the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, or the good Samaritan even, where the hero of the story, the hero, the example person who protects the injured man on the side of the road is a Samaritan, which at that time, you know, the Jewish people um, thought very low of Samaritans. You know, they were this... um, Excluded, exiled people, um, and the Samaritan is the good person in the story. So it's a it's a it's a reign where there's lots of um, where where the sexes, races, classes have equality. And then another important characteristic or modality maybe of the reign of God, because we're we're not going to recreate exactly what Jesus did because we have a different culture, we have a different context. But how did Jesus decide? What was the standard? What was the criteria for him? And I think there's this really great example where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, "Hey, this dude was working on the Sabbath, and as you know, in Jewish law, you can't work on the Sabbath." And Jesus says, "Well, was law what like? Is the Sabbath to serve man or is man to serve the Sabbath? Is is, is the law something that hinders us or is the law something that helps us?" Is the law or is it something is we rule... blindly
0: follow, or do we always get the chance to remake it through a process of questioning is this actually good for us or not? Yeah, in this moment? Jesus
1: is totally open to changing tradition and changing the law to suit our needs to give each other more life, so I think that's an important um, criteria to have in mind as you know we do our work towards a better kind of world um knowing that we're only going to get there if we're willing to change some law and some tradition that no longer serves us that no longer brings us life and joy.
0: And that key piece I think of for the purpose of what and you this is this is fun for me because you use some really neat words one serving us, right? Not serving me as an individual but serving us as a community and then you know, I think questions for episodes down the line is how big is that community? How far do we extend the kingdom of God? Right? Totally. Whether that be based on your creed or, you know, the size of your community or your race, whatever. Um, but then also in service of life, right? Like the, the true measure principle that we are using to define the the well-being of our society is not you know, our GDP necessarily, and that's a conversation that's happening all over the world. Does GDP or economic well-being truly reflect um, or respect human dignity? Is that really the proper tool for us to use? Um, and I think that lofty goal that a lot of people are reaching out towards is what we're really looking for is to service and sustain life. Um, and I think a lot of people are looking for a recipe to do that, and for me, the, the question when I listen to you talk about Um, you know, what Jesus was about, the whole project that he's working on, the whole project that I would understand as Christianity, um, what Christianity should be working on is inclusion, equality, and a consistent questioning of are we working in service of life, of protecting, serving, and sustaining life. You know, not to throw a massive wrench into the machine, but the, the question I'm left with after all of it is what went wrong? Like, what is happening? Because When I look at um, what Christian language on the fringes, right, we have to acknowledge that this is happening on the fringe, but it's a very loud fringe. Um, It's being used as a divisive tool. Um, We are seeing greater violence, whether that's violence, um, physical violence. I think with the new president, Trump, I see an incredible level of violence against the earth itself and a complete disregard or disconnection with the fact that we are not separate from this planet, we depend on it, I, I feel a lot of despair. And my question now, and I think for a lot of people, is how do we use this? How do we understand these rules and these principles? And how do we not just think of it as this nice project some guy had that's really no longer relevant, but something that we can still work towards and have hope that it will come about if only we continue to abide by these principles?
1: Totally. It's a long there's question. This, there's but... <laughs> this really wonderful quote that I love from Eduardo Galeano, who is a, I think he was from Uruguay. He died maybe last year. I mean, he's a novelist, an author. He's wonderful um, and very challenging. And he says, um, utopia, which I think the reign of God is a utopia. It's this no place. It doesn't exist. Um, but it's something that we hope for. He says, utopias are good for walking. And, you know, he means... <laughs> Even if we never get there, they keep us moving towards that. So if I have the reign of God as this point of faith and something that I believe to be true and that I believe that God will help us achieve or that God wants us to achieve, it will inspire me and push me to affect the world in a way that moves us towards that. Even if we never get there, it'll be better if we believe that we'll get there someday.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the word that came to mind was a camino de cambio. If you hold this utopia in your mind, it gives you maybe not a roadmap to follow where you can say here are steps one, two, and three, but in this moment, if I have this checklist, right, include search for equality and always question or seek to change laws that no longer serve us, it gives you, okay, here's what I'm going to do in this moment and the next and the next. Um, And I think the other piece that is sometimes forgotten, but something you said at the beginning, Laurel, and brings us back to revolution is this is a really uncomfortable path. You know, this inherently, this idea of the kingdom of God that comes from liberation theology is inherently uncomfortable because it highlights, if not puts us directly against structures of oppression. As an example, I woke up this morning and the first thing I saw was this news alert from The Guardian about how The environment was up for a rough ride under the new Trump administration, and in the article they talk about um, all these various things that the Trump administration is doing to really strip our core environmental regulations that make sure we have clean water, make sure we have clean air, and that the people who will suffer the most are the poor and the marginalized. Um, And I think we hear that all over the place. You know, the article next to it was, UN declares global humanitarian crisis with more people displaced than any time since World War II. Um, And I just lay there, and it was the first thing I saw when I woke up, and I just had no desire to get out of bed. I just felt so useless and so small, and I couldn't help but think, what can we possibly do? What chance do we have when the highest office in the world, the President of the United States, is doing these things with what seems to me a complete disregard for the things that Jesus was talking about, equality, inclusion, the poor. Um, and I just am left with this sense of, of despair, of just, if I could swear right now, I would. <laughs> just what do we do? Um, and I think one thing that comes out of me one thing that comes out of this conversation for me is, um, is faith, right? Whether you know we say that's a faith that you exercise by going to church on a Sunday morning, or it's a faith that you exercise on your own by saying, you know what, I will do my part, I will do my best, um, if I see an opportunity to include, to. Um, you know, be that donate to an organization that does the work I'd like to do, and I'm not in a position to do right now. Or I, if I just try to be kind, um, it it matters. It's it's something. It moves us closer along that path that Galliano talked about towards a utopia. Um, but that it's not. We're not looking for more Jesuses, so to speak. We're looking to follow in His footsteps. And um, yeah, I think that the idea that you're not alone. It's a historical project and will continue to be a historical project um, that requires the footsteps of everybody, right? Um, I think that, at least for me, is a comfort.
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's such a perennial story, you know. Um, Jesus and his movement and many other movements at his time were up against the Roman Empire, you know, which seemed like this huge forever thing but as we know the roman empire fell other empires came to replace it but there's such a long history of people struggling against empire and struggling against oppressive power and having some small victories having at least it's still alive there's still people working towards this so i just get a lot of comfort out of knowing that people have been doing this for thousands of years um struggling against power structures that really tear us down, there are people rebuilding it. There are people locally rebuilding it. And so having faith in the reign of God helps me to be able to keep doing some small things. Mm -hmm. I think it, it at once empowers you to do stuff and helps you realize that it's not only up to you.
0: Yeah, that last piece is important too, I think. Just trust that there are thousands, if not millions of other people chugging along como the way Eduardo Galeano said it right following the path of utopia <laughs> slowly yep for sure yep.
1: for sure alright well I think that maybe wraps up some <laughs> beginnings <six laughs> of reflection on, on the reign of God today I think it's something that we'll totally keep coming back to in future episodes but it just seemed like an important place to start because the reign of God was Jesus' project that's what he worked on his whole life so if we're going to be Christian that's going to be an important to understand and work for as well as you said
0: for sure and i think that we we shouldn't expect and and our listeners shouldn't expect that we're gonna end these episodes with nice clean conclusions i think we're gonna always end up with more questions than answers but that's the point too right (laughs) so um i think that wraps it up for uh at least revolution in the reign of god um our next episode will be about something far more tame the resurrection. <laughs> so, <laughs> we we hope you stay tuned.
1: Zombie Jesus, <laughs> exactly.
0: Um. Actually, yes, that's exactly what I wanted to bring up. So we'll be talking about zombie Jesus and the resurrection. Um, we'll hopefully drop drop that next episode in two weeks. And as always, thank you guys for listening. Uh, stay tuned to our page. And if you have any comments or questions or ideas, um, please send us a message or leave a note on Facebook, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. So until next time, thanks again.